Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we are continuing in Matthew 6 today, beginning in verse 19. Matthew six nineteen. this is the word of God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, indeed, we come to you as a thankful people because you have revealed yourself to us in your word that we don't have to guess, we don't have to... Uh, come up with our own ideas of how to approach our God and serve our God and please our God. And certainly, we don't have to guess about the way of salvation. You have made it known to us in your word, and so we thank you for it. Would you take it now and accomplish all of your good purposes through it in our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount in this study of uh, Matthew... We have just finished a, kind of a section where the theme was on hypocrisy, where Jesus was focused on our, uh, really our external uh, religion or religious practice. He used the term practicing your righteousness at the beginning of chapter 6. And although we don't really like the word religion or we think of practicing our righteousness maybe as some kind of meritorious work, this is not harmful language. This is helpful language that we were created for good works in Christ Jesus to walk in them. And so the focus, though, in, in talking about that in terms of what we might call religious uh, acts uh, was on hypocrisy, that we would be sincere. In other words, there's a way to do all this stuff that is insincere, that is hypocritical. And so Jesus is there warning us against that, going after the heart, going after the heart, going after the heart. Now, this doesn't change in this section, although he, the theme begins to change. He's still going to go after the heart. But his focus begins now on what we might call non-religious categories of things like money, food, and clothing. And here the theme shifts to that of trust or its antithesis, worry, or anxiety. This is now what Jesus begins to deal with. And you can see how kind of the overarching emphasis is really walking in worship, isn't it? Uh, because trust or worry and fear are all linked to anxiety, just as is sincerity as we approach the throne, that we walk in sincerity and not in hypocrisy. So there's this kind of uh, overarching theme then of worship in all of life. But as we approach this section, I don't want us to misunderstand that there is some kind of sacred-secular divide. You know, that's been a misnomer uh, at times in in church history. Uh, We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're to do it to the glory of God. In other words, everything we do matters. How we do things matter. How we live matters. John Stott writes, The divorce of the sacred from the secular in church history has been disastrous. If we are Christians... Everything we do, however secular it may seem, like shopping, cooking, going to work, 
It is religious in the sense that it is done in God's presence and according to God's will. One of the emphases Jesus makes in this chapter is precisely on this point, that God is equally concerned with both areas of our life, private and public, religious and secular. For on the one hand, your heavenly Father sees in secret, and on the other, your heavenly Father knows what you need, food, drink, and clothing. And as we've seen numerous times already in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't primarily addressing our behavior, but rather our hearts in the sermon. And obviously, we can't talk about our hearts without talking about our behavior. Uh, But it is possible, and this is why Jesus is addressing it, because this is what the Pharisees were really doing, is they were just adjusting behavior, and they weren't dealing with the heart. And so it's possible for us to to become little legalists with that, right? To to just try and do external, uh, conform in an external manner. And Jesus continually goes after the heart. Here, in this section, he uses money to uncover what is in our hearts, And I can't think of a better thing that will uncover my heart than money. And I think that's true for most of us. It has this unique power over us, although it's not limited to money. uh, But money has this unique power in our lives to reveal what is really in our hearts, where we really place our trust. As we'll see, he continues the theme, and we're going to look at this next week, dealing with food and with clothing and so forth, that we're going to see it's not limited to money. Money's not the problem. It's our hearts that are the problem. And so he begins uh, expanding upon this, and as we'll see in the coming week. Now, our tendency when it comes to money uh, in particular is to try and figure out exactly how to handle the matter. Uh, We want to know, well, what should I spend or what should I save or how should I do this or how should I do that? And we we can really get, uh, you know, some of us more than others can really kind of get into the the, the act of it, the numbers and the figures and and the management of it. But the particulars really are not where we need the most help. Where we need the most help, we need help in the particulars. I'm not discounting that. But where we need the most help is really in our hearts. One person can have a little bit of money and be kind and gracious and giving of themselves and fully content. Another person can have a lot of money and be kind and gracious and giving and fully content. And likewise, we know that we can also find many people who have little and who have a lot who are neither gracious, kind, nor content, but live their lives fretting over how they can get more and get more and get more. Our finances truly have a way of revealing what is in our hearts, because as Jesus says, where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. And so Jesus is addressing what our hearts treasure, that is what we worship, what we adore, where we put our trust. And so as we'll see, it's more than just about coins and figures and spreadsheets. It's about all of our possessions and all that comes from money, including power, including what we control, including our pleasures that we get from these things. It is so much more than that. And that's why the word that Jesus uses in chapter 24, it's not captured in the ESV, but many translations still retain it. It's the word mammon. We really don't have an English word for mammon, uh, but money is sufficient. I'm not going to you know, go toe-to-toe with the translators of the ESV. I think money's adequate, it's good, it captures what Christ is getting at. But I just want you to see it's more than money. The word mammon actually uh, meant worth. So it's really anything that is of worth or of value to us. That is what Jesus is going after here. That would include money, and for many of us, money's on the top of the list. 
But it isn't just money. It's whatever we put our trust in, our hope in, our value in. So whether it is our bank account, whether it is our possessions or our status, whether it is our value or privilege or the power that comes through, whatever it is that we possess, it is what we consider worthy. And Jesus is now taking our hearts to look up from these earthly things that we put all of this value in, to look up and to see that our reward awaits us in heaven that there is a heavenly reward that is awaiting us, that we who belong to him have something and a way that we can invest that is of far greater value than anything that we can possess or own here on this earth. For the redeemed of Christ, our position is that we have been seated with him in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2, 6 says. That is where we sit positionally. Although we are still here in this life and we still deal with finances and money and treasure and stuff and all of the things that we deal with in our life, spiritually, our status is that we have been seated in heaven. We are positioned differently than we might first realize as believers. We know we've been bought with a price, that we're not our own, that our bodies and souls belong wholeheartedly to him. Therefore, what is worthy, what is mammon in the good sense to us, should not be these temporal things, but should be instead heavenly things. Namely, the pearl of great price for the believer, what we are to love and treasure the most is Jesus himself. And so the, 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 the real question that emerges from this is, where is our trust? Where is our confidence? In what are we putting our allegiance? And so that's the question that should be in our minds as we now look at verse 19, where Jesus begins by saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so he says the same thing in a positive way and a negative way. He starts off with the negative. Don't do this, but do this. And it kind of relates the same idea to both. The whole idea of not laying up treasures here on earth really flies, though, in the face of most Americans, most Westerners, because so much of our, our ethos is generally built around uh, acquiring wealth. I mean, that's kind of what we do from day one. We're you know, taught to manage money. We're taught to, to save. We're taught to you know, invest. You know, we, we, we buy a house because we want to build up equity. And you know, we, we work hard because we want to get promoted. We want raises, all of that kind of stuff. So much of our, our being and existence is built around building wealth. And so when we read this, it is almost like a confrontation to everything we know and believe. By the way, that's the water we swim in. So we're really not tuned into it very much. That's why a passage like this is so helpful because it kind of rattles us a little bit. We're so comfortable in the water that we swim in. You know, fish don't realize the water they swim in. We don't, we don't realize the air we breathe, whatever metaphor we want to use here, that we can sometimes miss uh, what we're doing because it's, you know, it's just right there in front of us. We can't see it. So this passage is really helpful in confronting us in doing that. Now, the motive for acquiring wealth can actually be a good thing. Uh, it can be to provide for ourselves, for our families, prepare for the future, enabling ourselves to give generously, generally allowing us to flourish in this life. All those things can be done to the glory of God. Those are not sinful things. For example, we go back in Scripture and we see uh, in the example of Joseph how he was sent uh, providentially 
to go before even those brothers did it for evil, sold him a slave, a slave um, did it for evil. God meant it for good. Why? Because he set Joseph up to do what? To put in savings years' worth of grain to spare many people from the famine that was coming. So it was through the stewardship of saving. So saving's not a sin. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read the wise words, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In 1 Timothy 5, we read, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so working and saving and stewarding our resources, including our money, are not sinful things. Working and saving can and should be done to the glory of God. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are so fickle. They will so quickly take a good thing and turn it into a little idol, turn it into a little something that we like to worship and put our confidence in and try and uh, you know, uh, treat God as if he uh, is, it owes us for what we have just done. In the same letter to Timothy, a few sentences later, Paul writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Such enticement in our hearts is so dangerous, Paul says it can lead us astray. So we have to be on guard against this. I think this craving, um, didn't do a deep dive on that word there, but that craving, that's something we can all understand about this time of day, especially with the wafting of smells of food for lunch afterwards uh, going through the air. We get craving, right, especially Sunday mornings when we're sitting here. And, and it's this idea of craving, this desire, this hunger that money has the power of over us and really anything of worth or of value. So in one moment, it's good, it's healthy, it's profitable, and we're stewarding it well. And the next thing we know, it's captured our hearts and we're enslaved to it. That's the warning that's here. It's not a sinful thing. We just have to be on guard. The point that Jesus is getting at here really is about selfishly laying up treasures for ourselves, be it for our own pleasure, for our own glory, or for our own sense of security. We are warned here not to allow our hearts to pursue these things in a way that becomes treacherous, deceptive, or even harmful. As we continue in in, in scanning uh, uh, 1 Timothy, Paul goes on to say, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so it is from God's good hand that we receive every gift we have, which says here we can enjoy to his glory. But the point is, is we have to do this in a way that where we remain on guard from being haughty and from putting our confidence or our hopes on these things rather than on God. I would say as for the rich in this present age, that includes every one of us in this room. Uh, everyone who, who, who lives in America, for the most part, uh, are, are by far, compared to many in the world, rich in this present age, even though we certainly have the poor among us 
we are still far beyond uh, wealth of, of most people. And so this is a message to us that we would be on guard against becoming haughty or filled with pride on this. Jesus also points to the same uncertainty of riches that Paul mentions there by telling us everything decays, moth, rust, thief, right? Second law of thermodynamics, it's all going backwards. Everything's decaying. Everything's falling apart. We get this, especially here in this part of Florida, because the moment we buy something, particularly if it's anything that sits outdoors, I mean, it's, it's moments before we start seeing rust, isn't it? I've always found it interesting. I mean, you know, cars, the, a grill, anything that sits outside is harsh. But the hinges on our doors, I mean, I, I think it was the first month we were in the house, we noticed that our hinges were already rusting. Everything here rusts. The elements are harsh. Uh, it's hard on everything. Everything wants to eat you or kill you in Florida or grow over the top of you, right? And so we get a kind of an up-close personal affront with this. And it's not just our possessions that face this, but look at our money. Uh, inflation is stealing from us right now as prices soar. So it's e- even stuff that we think is safe, tucked away in a mattress or in a bank account, is continually being stolen from. So this is kind of the law of the universe, that everything is in a state of decay. Not only that, the thief can break in and steal what we have. And uh, many of us have experienced being robbed from. You know how infuriating it is. To uh, one, one, one case that we experienced was caught on video where the robber broke into the house and, and, and the video captured him walking out with Leslie's jewelry under one arm and my camera bag on his other arm. And it was great to have the footage, right? But it just made you want to vomit as you're, as you're watching this happen, watching your stuff walk away. And it's not just theft. Uh, this, we lose our stuff to storms, hurricanes, fires. Uh, people in the world lose their stuff during times of war. We all know loss in some way. The things that we often hold so dear, the things that we treasure, they're all evaporating. Nothing lasts. And so Jesus adds then the positive command to shift our attention from the temporal treasures to investing in heavenly things, to put our trust and our treasure in heaven. Now, Peter speaks of the same uh, reward that awaits us, but using different language that I think is, is maybe more helpful in the English. In 1 Peter 1.4, he says, We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's, there's no difference between what Jesus is saying with the, with the word that gets translated rewards here and what Peter is saying with the word that gets translated inheritance. But I just think inheritance helps us grasp this better. Because the idea of an inheritance we can understand is all of grace. It's not a matter of earning it. Because we get so tripped up on the whole idea of rewards. How does that work? And are we earning? And is God, does God owe us? Is, you know, is there a record sheet? Is, you know, how does all of that unfold? But we understand this relationally, that, that, that relationships don't work this way. I mean, if, if you go up to someone and you say, you, you, know, you do something, that is, I'm, I'm doing this as a true act of love, but I'd like this in return totally undoes your true act of love, right? The recipient knows that it was no true act of love. It was an exchange of goods, really. It was a, it was a, a tit for tat. And so relationally, we know that this doesn't work in our own lives. Healthy relationships, at least humanly speaking, are more symbiotic or interdependent. Of course, with God, it's, it's not um, because of who he is and because of who we are. God is all 
powerful, He is holy, He's perfect, and He is all loving. It's all of grace. He is the one who is bestowed upon us. We didn't bring anything to the table. Empty my hands, I you know, bring simply to the cross I cling, right? So we come empty-handed. God is the one who gives us all things. We are the creatures. We are the ones who are needy and dependent and sinful and relying upon Him. And so I think inheritance may help us grasp better what it is that is our heavenly reward that we do contribute to through our good deeds by which we are called to these things. But they are not wages. God is not our employer. He does not owe us. And so what then are these treasures that we lay up in heaven? Well, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the treasure that we are laying up. These good works, this obedience, this walking in accord. Uh, we could go back to the Beatitudes and look at the, the, those as examples, what Christ calls us to. Of course, whether we look at the Beatitudes or the fruit of the Spirit or any of these metaphors for these good works or, or descriptions of these good works, they're not all metaphors, uh, the descriptions of the good works, we see that there's both an eternal reward, something that awaits us, this heavenly reward that Jesus is pointing to here, but there's also a reward right now. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Right? We see the blessing here and now when we live in obedience to God's word. Peter describes the inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And so we see Jesus say the same thing, just using different imagery, no moths, no rust, no thieves to break in and steal. So our obedience, our kindness, our graciousness, our mercy, our forgiveness, our love, these are the most secure investments that we can make in this life. And then in verse 21, Jesus takes us to the heart of the matter. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the tie-in between worship and all of life. What we treasure is what we love and what we worship. And whatever that is has our heart. If it is wealth, money has our heart. If it's security, that's where our trust is found. If it's our health, that's where all our hope is placed. And I think we can all readily admit that these aren't nice, neat little categories that are either yes or no, are they? Because one moment... Our retirement savings can be a wise plan for the future. And as if somebody has flipped a switch, the next moment it becomes an incredibly unhealthy obsession whereby we are checking it, determining if we need to change investments, watching news shows, reading blogs, and miserably fretting about our future. Our, one day our health a reasonable priority, we strive to maintain it, and the next day we become consumed by exercise and supplements and organic foods and the next fad diet. One day our car is a means to get from point A to point B, and the next day we are obsessed watching reviews on YouTube, going to the showroom, test driving what we determine we must have if we are to be happy. I see a few smiles out there. So what do we do? Well, first we have to recognize that our hearts are where the problem is. Because stewardship is a good thing. Having a vehicle is a good thing. Most of us couldn't uh, get through life without of it. Without it, Taking care of our health is a good thing. But all of these things can so quickly become little idols in our heart if we are not on guard. What do we do? Well, Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
That is, what we dream about, what we scroll through, what we spend our time researching, looking at, what we try on or test drive, what we take in from the media, what we talk about with our friends, all of these things can consume us as treasure. Like Gollum with his ring, right? We have so many things that become my precious when we become obsessed by them. That's what our hearts do. Today we started a new series in Sunday School. I'm glad for those who could be here. We're looking at the, 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 the topic of corporate worship. And in doing this, my hope is in this uh, learning and understanding more about what corporate worship is, we'll gain more from corporate worship. But one of the things that we're going to see that we gain from corporate worship is a reorientation of our hearts. We need it. We need that in the rhythm of our lives, that we would be reminded of the gospel, that we, as we come together, we, we've been through the week, all the bells and whistles of life have been ringing in our ears, and we, then we come together and we hear the gospel and we confess our sins and we seek God in prayer and we sing of the glorious grace of our Savior. And it reorients, it changes us each and every week to adjust our hearts in what we treasure. That's one of the purposes of worship to remind us of what we need to treasure. Because everything else is working against us. I mean, we all know this. And the minute, I say this all the time, but the minute we get back out here on the road, you know, 100 feet, we're going to pass, you know, Busy Bee, and we're going to think of what we need to buy from there, or the next billboard, or the next sign, or the next whatever. That's not a knock against Busy Bee, but uh, they're, they're, they're nice to us. But the, the point is, is we're inundated. We're inundated with all of these things that we need to, to have or to be fulfilled Uh, that we need to buy. And so corporate worship has a way to cause our hearts to be reoriented that we might treasure Christ among all things. And if we are to do so, we need to continually, regularly uh, fix our attention upon Him. Because if we don't, the allure of all these other things that are in our ears and before our eyes will will lead us away, those cravings that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy. It, those things will lead us astray and cause us to love and worship and put confidence in other things. This often happens through our eyes, scrolling, uh, going to the showroom, going to the shopping sites, reading investment blogs, watching television shows, sports, whatever. However we peruse the things that we're most interested in, it comes in through the eye gate. And so Jesus here uses this imagery of our physical sight to communicate something of a spiritual reality of our souls. He calls the eye the lamp of the body. And what he is saying here is not that we know the eye doesn't produce light. It's not what Jesus is saying here. He made the eye. He knows that. But rather that it is the gate or the processing through which all light comes. And what he's speaking about here folks, isn't physical sight at all. It's just, it's, it's an image for us to understand what's actually going on in our hearts and in our souls. It's almost like the eye of the soul or the eye of the heart, which is what Jesus is dealing with here. And so the correlation is that if our physical eye becomes unhealthy, our sight physically becomes clouded or becomes absent. We, we can lose it. And what he's saying is that if the sight of our soul becomes unhealthy. It becomes clouded and distorted, and we can be blinded, spiritually speaking. That is, if our hearts are divided, if our hearts lack sincerity, if we're otherwise hypocritical, it affects everything. How we process what we're taking in, everything becomes affected by this. We see this language in the book of Psalms. 
For example, it says in Psalm 119.10, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. It's the idea of the heart's orientation. A few verses later, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. There's the, the language of the eye and the heart being connected together. And so the eye idea of fixing our eyes here, while it can involve our physical vision, is clearly representing something more. It is the heart's attention or the sight of our soul. And so what the psalmist is saying is as he fixes his eyes, the eye of his soul, on the Word of God here in Psalm 119, it shines the light of who God is within him. That's what's being communicated to. And the, the converse is true. When we fix our mind's attention and our heart's affections on the things of this world, worldly, trivial, sinful things, Jesus says, how great is the darkness. That's, that's what's going on in our hearts. That's the battle that we're continually dealing with constantly as we're processing what we see and what we take in. In other words, you can't cozy up too close to a fire without getting singed. You can't expect your affections and worship of God to be warmed when you spend all of your time with your eyes fixed elsewhere. We can't expect our faith or our trust in Him to be strong when we spend all of our time looking with the eye of our soul at earthly things. What are we taking in? What are we thinking about? What are we obsessing on? Again, I'll use a local example, hurricanes. What happens when a hurricane comes within a thousand miles of the peninsula of Florida? Boom, 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 ominous music, striking visual graphics, a new name stormed, surge potentials, power outage potentials, rain potentials, I mean, on and on and on and on. And after hours and hours and even days of taking this in, do we have to wonder why we are filled with worry and fear, even though the storm is still 800 miles away and is not going to come near us? Right? That's, that's, that's a great example of what happens when we, we, we spend all of our time taking in all of this ominous news that may or may not happen, and we become fixated on it. I am not suggesting that we stick our heads in the sand. I am simply saying that we recognize that we reap what we sow. What we spend time taking in, what we spend time thinking about, meditating on, worshiping, is what will affect our heart's attention and affection. So where are our eyes fixed? What are they taking in? In verse 24, Jesus carries the point further, using the imagery of a slave serving two masters, saying it simply won't work. You ever had two bosses? There's not many places where that happens. Most companies know that won't work. I've seen, I can think of one example of a church that had co-pastors that has survived. Most of them don't. Uh, There is a, a challenge when we put, um, uh, we divide our, our time, so practically it becomes uh, difficult and understandably. You know, one boss says you're supposed to be doing something, the other boss says this is my time, right? So practically it doesn't work. But Jesus is getting a little deeper here when he says, you know, your loyalty isn't there. You can't be loyal to both. That's really where the problem lies, is divided loyalty. And so this is why he says you cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon. Mammon is the word that's used here. And again, I'm not going to argue with people that are a lot smarter than me that did the translation, but uh, we don't have an English word for it. So I I get money works well, and it it captures what's being represented here. But I again want to emphasize that it's more than money. It is whatever is of worth to us. Money, real estate, being liked by others, 
hobbies, shopping, cars, entertainment, our phones, exercise, our careers, stewardship, education, food. Yeah, even stewardship, right? Even managing money itself can become an idol. <laughs> We're trying to do the right thing. We're, our spiritual disciplines, as I prayed this morning, can become an idol where we think that somehow those are meritorious and that we're earning God's favor uh, by doing certain things. I've read the Bible every day or we feel horrible. I haven't read it. You know, all of those things. We so quickly turn things that we value into little idols. And we can take any of these things or any other things, many good things, and turn them into something that we are devoted to. We can think of it in terms of a spectrum. Interest becomes commitment. And commitment becomes devotion. And devotion becomes enslavement. And how quickly we move through that spectrum. Maybe it's more of a slippery slope than it is a spectrum. But things that can, can just be so innocent as interest and commitment can overnight, if not in a moment, become devotion and enslavement. This is why we have to keep coming back to what we see in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. I don't know if you, you feel the, the, in the English the, the emphasis on that word vigilance. It's, we don't use that word a lot. But, I mean, Solomon's expressing here, the, the, this, is, this is absolutely essential that you keep your heart, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Let me read what he says right after that. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. There's a sense of a single-mindedness in this, a sense of focus. And as I said, even that can become an idol. So we have to guard our heart, even in guarding our heart. That's why Jeremiah says the heart's sick, it's deceitful. It's hard to grasp. We can't get our hands around it. Having money, enjoying good things in this life that God has given us to enjoy is no sin. But we all need to heed the warning of danger that comes with what we put our trust in. There is an allure of things that we find valuable. A magnetic draw that pulls our heartstrings to find in these things our hope, our value, our joy, and ultimately what we think will satisfy us. It's not the objects that are the problem. It is our heart. We've all experienced in this life how quickly the joy fades from the shiny new thing that we thought we had to have. Like sands, sand in our hands, you know, we, you know, you can't hold it, it just slips right through. Rust and moths, thieves and storms, even, even our own fading interest. How many times, if those of us as parents, did we deal with this with our children of showing them, but look at all these toys that you had to have and now you don't want to play with them. And then we turn around as adults and we do the same thing. Where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Where is our joy? In Christ, our Savior, we have a pearl of great price, a great treasure that is undefiled and unfading. We're called to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that we might find in Him pleasures forevermore, uh, fullness of joy at His right hand. In, In Jesus, Isaiah tells us, we see the beauty and the glory of our God, that He is a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to His people. See, our Savior not only delivered us out of sin, out of our darkness into His marvelous light, but He also causes within us who by faith 
take and drink of the eternal life. He causes a spring of water that overflows within us. And so what is that spring that is flowing out of us? It's a good question to regularly ask. What kind of water is flowing out? Is it good and sweet and delicious? Or is it sour? Is it bitter? Is it poisonous? Because what we worship, what we love, what we put our confidence in will determine the kind of water that flows out of us. Thankfully, by His grace, He's continually renewing us. And this is why I come back to the importance of confessing our sins because He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even though five minutes ago when I was full of anger and and saying all kinds of mean things, I can be forgiven. The well can be reset in a sense. And now springs of water, of living water, can flow out of me again. Thank God for his forgiveness for us. That our sins can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. That we might live then overflowing in that outworking of praise and obedience unto him that becomes now our treasure, our inheritance in heaven, where nothing will destroy them. Where our satisfaction will finally be fulfilled where we will want no more and we will be forever filled with joy with our Savior and our God. This is our hope. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, what, we're, what we need here is just not anything we can do. And we confess that. We need you to to work and to move. Because even if we got it right for a moment, we're going to blow it in the next one. Our hearts are so, so fickle. We deceive ourselves. We do good things and then we gloat inwardly. We take pride in our good works. Lord, we... um, We make plans. They become selfishly motivated. We do things sometimes, Lord, we're oblivious to. We don't even know how we're harming other people. Lord, we are continually sinning. And so we confess that we need your forgiveness over and over again. But Lord, thank you that you you don't leave us in this state, but you've promised and you are working and you show us the fruit of that you are growing us in Christ's likeness, that you are transforming us from one degree to another, that, that this is not the end, the state that we struggle against. And thank you that we can look back and we can see growth and progress. And Lord, we ask for you to work in us that we would continually come to the cross that we might be cleansed, renewed, refreshed to see that where our treasure is, truly is, is in Christ Jesus. May we treasure him above all things so that then as we steward what you've entrusted us, as we enjoy the good things that you've given to us enjoy, it will truly be to your glory and for our good. And Lord, when we blow it, and we will, Would you bring us quickly to repentance that we might confess and be renewed again? Father, we don't trust you easily 
and we don't trust you well. But I thank you for this time, both as, as we worship you, but especially as we hear from your word, how this reshapes us, reorients us, refixes our minds on what is truly worthy, that is Christ Jesus. So help us to love and adore him. Above all things in this world, let us fix our eyes on him. Would you do that in our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and